Ladies and gentlemen and hockey fans of all ages, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Hockey Fan Chat. I am your host, Randy Dillon. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year at that time of year. Hope everyone's doing great out there. Some exciting news on the hockey front. We discovered that the NHL will be starting up back again on January 13th. That is exciting. Interesting how the format will go. Then we got the World Juniors Championship Tournament starting on December 26th. A great Boxing Day tradition, seeing the young players of the future and what they're made of. In the latest episode of the Hockey Fan Chat, it was a great conversation I had with a Nashville Predators fan. Really fun and we got to talk about kind of the fall of the team the last few years. The hope, the expectation the team have. Get into a little bit of the history, the P.K. Subban, the Shea Weber trade. And... Another thing about, did Nashville start the big concert and the festivities, and did Vegas kind of tag along on it? Please welcome my guest, joining us all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. He is known as the ultimate predator, UT. Hey, UT, how's it going? Good, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, man, absolutely. No problem. Thank you very much. Anyone come to the show, we'd like to know... Why are they a fan of the team they cheer for? Why are you a Nashville Predators fan? Are you from the Nashville area? or? I am. My family and I moved here from Philadelphia in 91, 92, somewhere in there. And I had learned the sport, learned of the sport, and became a fan of the sport in Philadelphia, where we moved from. So I was a Flyer fan. John LeClaire was the guy that I kind of latched on to. I was a huge LeClaire fan. I still have my LeClaire jersey. But when we moved here, there was no team. So I still kind of kept that Philadelphia love, followed it a little bit. But once the announcement came that Nashville was getting a team, just like that, I switched my allegiance, decided that I was going to be a homer for the home team. And so in 1998, I became a Predators fan and have been ever since. That's a very interesting situation put in because for a long time cheering for the Flyers, going to the Preds as a new fan of the organization. Starting off as a fan, watching the team in the beginning, was it kind of hard to get into them and be excited for them because of the new team come to league? It took them a couple of years before they became a big thing. Not for me, because I just enjoyed hockey. I've always just kind of been a hockey fan once I got introduced to the sport. Was I the ultimate predator at that point? No, I wasn't. That didn't come from many years later. But I was still a fan. Uh, I still went to games. Um... Actually, it was kind of nice because for those first few years, you could get $10 tickets, $12 tickets. You'd be up in the nosebleed section, but I'll be honest with you, what we used to do is we would buy the tickets for the $10, $12 seats, and then you just kind of watch the arena because games weren't selling out back then. We didn't have a home sellout streak. We were lucky if we sold out any games. So you just kind of watch, and however many people, two or three or four, you watch the seats and you see how low you can get before you get caught. Thanks to that, I actually got some glass seats every now and then because people wouldn't show up. And you just kind of watch and you pick and you poke and you move, and that's kind of how it was back then. But no, I still love the team. I was still a huge fan. I still had merch and swag and all that stuff, and it was nice to see the growth you know, of the team how fast it kind of exploded after a while. It was scary to think at the 10-year mark or so that we might lose the team because we that fit with uh, Jim Balsillie, 
can't say his last name. The guy that owns BlackBerry, Rhythm in Motion. You know, when he bought out the team and they were talking about the potential move to Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and I wasn't happy and there were a lot of people not happy. So seeing the team potentially leave, then grow to the size with the fan base that it has, it's been fun. It's been a good ride. That's interesting to hear in my end because in 2004, that's when I feel the team really took off when they first made the playoffs and they were going into the juggernaut Detroit Red Wings and pushed them to a game six, made the playoffs a couple of times. 07 was a good year, 2008. They were doing better than a team like the Coyotes. And I don't know why they are staying, but the Predators are trying to get moved. How big is hockey in the Nashville area? I'd like to know, because a lot of people you hear Nashville, the country music area, a lot of the big country singers are there. But how is hockey? It started getting a lot bigger recently. The Stanley Cup run helped generate a lot of interest, of course. The playoff runs helped. Getting to the second round the first time helped. And the team that we beat to get to the second round the first time helped. You know, back then it was the Red Wings and that was the big rival. But now we broke ground on our third set of sheets of ice. It's going to be in a city that's not even that close to Nashville. We're growing outside of Nashville now, which is huge. It's very big. There's a city called Clarksville. It's about 45 minutes, an hour away. They're getting their first sheets of ice. And that's just really cool to see. We've got two rinks that have two sheets each here in Nashville. And a lot of men's league play, beer league hockey. The youth hockey is coming up a lot. It's still not to the point where some hockey cities that have one hockey team per high school or anything like that. There's a lot of combined high school teams, but it's getting there and it's growing. But yeah, to your point, the playoff runs early on helped, but that Stanley Cup run really kind of pushed it over the top. I think that's impressive to say because Predators, they've only been in Nashville, I think, close to their 25 year. I think they just passed their 20 and, and it keeps growing. I find it a very exciting team to watch. You hear they're proud at some of the games. They're loud and proud. I feel like that would be a fun arena to go to and watch a Preds game. It's a love it or hate it crowd. You're either going to show up as a visiting fan and you're going to love it and you're going to think it's fun or you're going to walk out and you're going to hate it. I've seen both, and I've talked with both, that some fans love it, they get along with it, they kind of laugh along with it, they get it, they get that it's part of the fun. And then there are some fans that are, I hate to use the word traditionalist, but I guess it's the right word to use, a little bit more traditional, and, and they want their hockey the way they've always had their hockey since the first puck was dropped, you know, a thousand years ago. But that's just not what we do here. This is a different area of not even just hockey fandom, but the country in general. The Southerners in the United States like loud, obnoxious, annoying things. It's the birthplace of NASCAR car racing. It's the birthplace of professional wrestling is the South. And, you know, we're loud and boisterous and obnoxious and dumb. So that's how hockey kind of took over here. And the, the nice part about it is instead of the ownership and the management being, hey, that's not hockey, we need to calm this down, they embraced it. You know, Nashville embraced its non-traditional stance with the catfish, the chants, and the live band entertainment between periods, and how people like me, you know, that dress up in luchador wrestling masks and run around with a championship belt around their waist. We embrace it. Bring your weird, and whatever you do, don't leave it at the door. I think that's just incredible, to be honest. Watching me on TV one thing. Being at a game, I think it, a spectacle should be enjoyed. You're paying good money to be there. There should be some fun festivity. Like, you look at Vegas now where they put all these great shows, and I'm going back to it. Like, Nashville always had the, the country singer, big country stars coming up singing the national anthem. I think that just, it's a spectacle you want to put on. I think the Preds maybe should get more of uh, saying, hey, we started kind of putting a spectacle on for the fans more than with Hell the Hell yeah, we team. did. 
Hell yeah, we did. I can remember back in probably 2002, 2003, somewhere right in there. I was at a game as a fan, of course, and watching the game. It was a Detroit Red Wings game. And in that night, I got to watch a Nashville Predators victory, a Vince Gill concert with the country music side of it. And when he played during the first intermission and an Alice Cooper concert, when he played between the second and third intermission, just because he was there. (laughs) alice cooper happened to be taking in a hockey game and they invited him up on our live band stage and i got an alice cooper concert between the second and third period where else can you say that's gonna happen i don't think you can you look at vegas like they put on some of the spectacle that you're talking about right there now that's a spectacle i would say heck that was a good night worth of money at a game (laughs) well you can thank us for that because they're stealing their ideas from nashville so (laughs) that is it but you did mention 2017, that playoff run, where they went to the cup final. It was magical. I want to get into two parts of it. My first question is, Ryan Johansson gets hurt in game five against Anaheim, doesn't play. They win mm-hmm. that series, and they play the Penguins in. There was a big gaping hole. Do you think the Preds could have beat the Penguins or pushed them to their limits if they had Johansson, or do you still think the Pens would have walked out the champions? Oh, man, that's really hard to say. I think it would have pushed at least to a Game 7. I'm not going to sit here and be the homer guy and say, hell yeah, we would have won, but hell yeah, we would have won. But also, I think it would have been at least a Game 7. Pekka was really struggling in PPG Arena. It was just he couldn't get his mojo in that building. Could we have won? Maybe. Could we have pushed it to a Game 7? I think we could have pushed it to a Game 7, because that was a hole. And not that Johansson has years and years and decades of playoff experience, and especially cup experience, but that is a key anchor to that top line and has been. And you can see when one of those pieces isn't on, that top line just doesn't work the same. So I think we had a better shot had he been there. I don't think I can guarantee we would have won, but I think we would have had a better shot. And we could have at very least pushed it to a seven. I like the opinion there. I think for I look at it where it was a tough series to play against the Penguins. Obviously, we have the likes of Crosby and Malcolm. It's really hard. But I think the blow to Johansson is just huge. Now, the second part of my question is a lot of people thought in 2017, this team had a window for a couple of years to go out and win a championship. It looks like the window has shut completely in the last few years where, unfortunately, upset to Winnipeg, then to Dallas, and this year they struggled right out of the gate and they couldn't beat Arizona. Where is kind of the issue that where the fall for the Predators have happened? Is it Pecorani's performance against the Jets? Is it something that happened with the coaching with LaViolette? Or is there another issue that's causing them to struggle? If you take a look, I think it's a combination of things. I, I love Peck at a death. I always will. He put Nashville hockey on the map better than probably anybody else that's ever played for this team. And that includes the likes of, you know, Paul Correa, includes the likes of Shea Weber, PK Subban. But Rene is the face of the franchise and has been for so long. But it's hard when you're aging, and especially when you're an aging goalie, to just maintain that level for so long. And I love Yusei Soros, and I think he's going to be a great goaltender, but I don't think he was quite ready to take the reins. I think maybe next year or the year after, he'll be an all-star caliber goalie. I don't think he was ready to be in the role quite yet that he was expected to be in. And, And I may be wrong on that, but I'm certainly no goalie guru. 
but I think that plays into it. If you take a look at the longevity of a Peter Laviolette coach team, you get about five, six, maybe seven good solid years. And then I don't know if the message wears thin or what, or he just loses the locker room or what really happens. But if you take a look in Philly about that sixth or seventh year is when they started to wear thin. If you look at Carolina about that sixth or seventh year is where they started to wear thin. We were in our sixth year with Laviolette and it was starting to wear thin. I think that played into it. Honestly, I think the year after the cup, I think a little arrogance may have slipped in. We just expected it, especially coming off that Stanley Cup year and winning the President's Trophy. Now, I know the President's Trophy has that curse stigma that's attached to it, but when you win the President's Trophy, you know, it gets in your head. You're the best in the league, and there's a reason that you've done it. And I I think that may have played into it. We had a little too much swagger, a little too much confidence. That 2017 year, nobody ever pick the Predators, ever. We weren't expected to go out of the first round against Chicago that year, much less sweep them. When you're the underdog and you're punching up, nobody expects you. When you're the uh, favorite and you're punching down, everyone's coming after you. And I don't think we were ready to play from that position. I don't think we were ready to play with that kind of, hey, we're the favorite. You know, we're used to people talking bad about us. For years, I used to call us the city of the league forgot because nobody ever talked about us, period. And I, I don't think we were ready for that. So I think age plays into it. I think the coaching plays into it, which is why I'm also going to probably jump ahead to question here and say, give Hines a chance. He's only had half a season and that half a season was only half a season because the rest of it was cut off from the pandemic. Yeah, we struggled against Arizona, but we had a brand new coach in. Not every team can install a coach halfway through a season and go on to win a Stanley Cup. It's unheard of. There's a lot of factors into it. Going back to that, like I think a lot of people where I look at where kind of the fall was that Dallas series. I had the Predators actually going all the way, going to the cup final, not winning it that year, but they had a good shot because the team they had on paper, they they still had a good group core and they added some good pieces in Granlin and Simmons, but it just seemed like they couldn't score. The power play was struggling and it just seemed a team that wasn't engaged anymore. I agree. I think the message was kind of lost and I'm not sure where the power play struggles came from, but the fact that we had it and we didn't do anything to change it. The year before Laviolette finally got the boot, there was talk about the power play is struggling. We need to do something. We need to change something. We need to get a new coach in. We need to get a new system installed. It's just not working and no changes were made. None. So yeah, we're going to struggle again because nothing changed. Special teams has been kind of a frustrating thorn in our side for the past couple of years, and and hopefully some stuff will be made in the upcoming, knock on wood, upcoming season to correct some of this. True. Now, going into John Hines, how much faith do you have in the head coach? Because for the Predators, Barry Trotz was there for so many years, then you bring Laviolette. John Hines is only the third coach in this franchise history, so kind of, I know there's high expectations or there's hope. I know he didn't do great in Jersey, but he didn't have the greatest roster either. And that's the what I look at. Jersey hasn't been Jersey since the mid-90s, and they've just been struggling to find that identity. But he did have Taylor Hall, and he turned Taylor Hall into Taylor Hall. You know, look, look at Taylor Hall after he's left Jersey. He just hasn't produced at the same level. So I think there could be something here. I think the people that are judging him off of what happened in the bubble season, the asterisk season, whatever, COVID cup, whatever you want to call it, The people who are judging on that alone and saying, yeah, we should go ahead and get rid of him and let's go on to the fourth coach. There's no way you can judge what happened based on that season. That's the weirdest season anyone could ever prepare for. Not only are you jumping into a team halfway through a season, but your season's cut short and you don't know what's going to happen next. And were there better prepared teams? Yeah, but if you take a look at those play-in game series, they were all sloppy. We just happened to be the sloppiest of the bunch. 
call it bad coaching, call it bad timing, you know, whatever you got to do. But everybody played sloppy hockey right up until that second or final round. It just was bad. So for me, I'm not ready to throw in the towel yet. I wouldn't say my faith is 100%, but I'd say it's at least 80 to 85. Let me get a full season with real coaching and real practice time, and let's give him a chance to install his system. Now, the hard part is we're going into a season where our core group is there, but we lost a lot of players, and we had to. Salary caps, and you got a structure for the future, and a wholesale change did need to be made. But I don't know. I, I think it's too early to tell. And I think last season, throw it away. Next season, let's see what he can do with the talent we've got. See if there's anything we can build on with what we brought in. You know, that is a good point to make, especially with, I would say, the play and run being sloppy. Everyone was so excited for hockey to be back to something to watch. I think if you watch it closely, like, it was not the best hockey you could have had. A little bit more, I would say, near the exhibition. Going into the Preds team, I look at them into the upcoming season where kind of like in the wild card where I don't know if they're still a legitimate contender for the cup, but I still think they're a good team that can surprise people. They did lose some pieces like Gradlin, Kyle Turris, but they did add, I like how the move they made on defense, adding guys like Borowski and Matt Benning. So where does this team kind of fall for next season? I think we make the playoffs, but I think we make it as a wild card. And I think we make it as that final wild card in the West. I think this team can surprise some people. If we can get those top lines scoring again, I was really hoping that we would bring in, you know, first, second line swap kind of skater on that front line. I was hoping we would draft a skater for that those front top two lines, someone who might be able to make a little bit more of an immediate impact other than a goalie. Granted, he's a good goalie. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But, you know, someone who would make a little bit more of a sooner impact rather than a later impact. I like the moves we made to stock the defense up a little bit. That third pairing that we've had for the last couple of years has struggled. We need to get that third pairing up, especially if we're going to move Dante Fabro up into the second line pairing. He's still a rookie. You know, it's only his second and a half year. And they're expecting a lot out of him. I'm expecting a lot out of him. I like Fabs. I think he's a great player. And I think he can be a good defender. But we've got to shore up that third pairing, which I think they did. The hard part for me is not... Granlin was a little bit of a loss. Torres can be a little bit of a loss. And there's a, a good friend of mine who I'm sure is going to be listening to this. Kyle Torres, he's going to kick me in the back of the head. But they weren't the major losses. I think the biggest loss on this team that we took is going to end up, and the one that's really going to bite us, is going to end up being Craig Smith. He was good for a solid 20 to 25 goals a year. And that's a hold to miss. Craig Smith, he's been a long-time Pred. He had some 20 goal scorers nowadays. That's hard to come. I also look at it. I look at Matt DeShane being a big question mark because last year it was just an awful year. He was not even close to putting the point trajectory where he had in Ottawa where he didn't really have great line mates. And he had the chance to play in the top line by the last game against Arizona in the play-ins. He's on the wing. It's kind of like a lot of hopes on him because they signed him to a big deal like Turris hoping he was going to work out. And right now it doesn't look too great. This fan base is torn almost down the middle when it comes to Duchesne. Well, probably a little bit more on the, the wrong side of this. There's a lot of people that are still wanting the Matt Duchesne of old to show up and think that he will. And there's a lot of people saying we dropped $8 million on a stink and that he's not the guy anyone thinks he was. He's not the guy Poyle thinks he was. He's not the guy he thinks he was. And there's just a lot of debate on what to do with Duchesne. 
I see the flashes when he gets on the ice. I don't know if it's one of those, I finally got what I wanted. I wanted out of Colorado. I wanted out of Ottawa. I, you know, I wanted out of these. I've been wanting to be in Nashville and a huge sigh of relief. Like, okay, now everything can start over again. And it didn't. I don't know. I don't know what the kick in the butt is for him, but he needs it. Hopefully shaking up the lines will be that kick in the butt that he needs. I don't know. It's like this weird Moby Dick situation now. It's when you've been chasing that white whale for so long, now that you caught it, what do you do? Because it's not working out the way you thought it would. You know, a dog chasing a car. When you catch the car, what do you do with it? And now it seems to be that way with Duchesne. We've got Duchesne after years of Poyle chasing him. Why isn't it working? What do we do with him? If I had that answer, I'd be the fourth coach in Fred's <laughs> so history. that is true. And I also look at it going back to a little bit of Turris, where Turris, I think a lot of people thought was going to be that saving grace. They get him from Ottawa, signed that big contract, and it just could never work out. And Granlin was the same way. A lot of people thought that Mikhail Granlin, that one-for-one -one trade with Fiala, was going to help bolster up a little bit. You know, Fiala had some flashes, but he was having some problems, and he was struggling, and Granlin seemed like a pretty even swap and just didn't quite work out the way everybody thought it would. Both of those guys had their time here that had flashes of really, really solid, really good hockey. They just couldn't continue it. They couldn't keep it consistent over a strong enough or long enough period of time. And when it came for that wholesale change, those were two of the easiest contracts to get rid of. That is true. I think Turris, I just think kind of like a, a settlement where both parties knew the Preds and Turris knowing it wasn't going to work and they had to walk away. But do they have enough depth on the forward group? Because they lost quite a big piece and then some guys are going to move up like Yarncross, <clears throat> Cole Simmons, and Grimaldi. But then the bottom six kind of like look a little bit flat and unsure. The bottom six worry me a little bit. It'll be interesting to see what happens with whatever sort of spring training that we're allowed to have when this starts coming up to see what we can get out of Milwaukee. I think there's some depth in Milwaukee that can play on those bottom six that aren't going to light the world on fire, but that will keep enough consistency that we're not completely lost out there on a sinking boat as soon as the top two are done for the night or that we need to grind minutes out of the top line more than they need to get in a night. There's some talent in Milwaukee. I'm not sure if he's ready, but I keep talking here in Nashville about Tomasino with the Ice Dogs. And man, he is lighting stuff up. Now, that's a completely different league and that's a completely different level of talent. But I think he can shock some people uh, in the NHL and be a solid ad. Now, he may be a year or two out from being ready, but he's getting there. So there's talent in the wings. I don't think it's the talent that we're used to seeing in Nashville, but there's talent in the wings I think Milwaukee can provide for some of those if we start struggling with who we've got now. I think it'll be interesting to see with what we do have left of what we can put together. I think the top two lines are going to be a little bit more solid. I think they're going to be a lot more solid. And I'll be interested to see what happens with those third line and fourth line when things are kind of said and done. I think we're going to see a lot more of Yakov Trenin. I think uh, this is going to sound weird to a lot of people and not so weird to some, but I think we're going to have some expectations hung on a Rocco Grimaldi as a player. He's the kind of fire plug that can spark a line. I don't think he's going to be a top-line player. I love Rocco, don't get me wrong. I don't think he's a top-line player, but I think he's a fire plug to be put into that third or fourth line and not necessarily anchor it, but make sure that that line stays alive. He plays with grit and heart. He gets out there and he knows he's not the tallest, biggest player on the ice, but he throws his weight around and he makes it happen. So I think he's going to be counted on a little bit more than even he might be used to being counted on and i think milwaukee's gonna have to supply some depth for us yeah. as well if you look at the depth chart in nashville they've always been able to supply so many great defensemen where it just a crop there now hopefully in the forward side where something the franchise will have struggled over the year generating those top players up in front of the lineup it will be interesting 
do you think David Poyle had any more moves to make? Because he's the only GM in Nashville history. He had done a tremendous job with this organization to build them from the ground up. Do you think he's going to make another move or a signing, for example, a guy like Mike Hoffman, or with the situation with the coronavirus, the owners really struggling for money, is he kind of at a point where he can't make any moves? If I were him, I would kind of rest easy for right now. And I think that's what the plan is. Not that we're pushing salary cap. We're not horribly, horribly close. We're not horribly, horribly close to the cap. We've got some space. But in this weird kind of situation that nobody really knows what's going to happen with the year, if they complete a full season, if the season's even going to happen. And there was a lot of questions with revenue coming into this year as far as salary cap being raised or was it going to stay the same? And what happens next year if we're still not allowed fans and we're still not generating that kind of revenue? Does the cap go up? Does it stay the same or does it lower going into next season? I think you hold tight. To me, there's not a major signing that's going to boost this team from, you know, wildcard two or a central division three or even a central division two or a Western Conference one. That signing's not out there. I think even with an addition of a Matt Hoffman, you go from wildcard two to wildcard one. And that's just not enough for me to say, yeah, let's go sign him and see what happens. I think you sit tight. He's shown that if the right move is out there, he'll take it. Nobody ever expected Shea Weber to be traded at all, much less for uh, an available P.K. Subban. But he's shown time and time again, if the right move is out there, he'll make it. But I think for now, you sit tight. You sit tight, you see what happens, let the season play out a little bit. And uh, if the right signing is there by the deadline, which Lord knows when the deadline is going to be now, but if the right signing is there by the deadline, make the signing at the deadline, but don't push anything until then. That's really, I think, defined Dave Poyle tender as, as an actual GM because he hasn't been really guys who've been aggressive to go out and get people other than maybe DeShane. He's come with quiet and he makes the right move in. I know in the in the mid two thousands where he drafted players like Hart, no team, and unfortunately had to lose them because of cap restriction and salary reasons. But he's never been a guy to say he's in the thick of things. He's kind of waiting for everything to kind of unfold. Yeah, he does kind of let the game come to him, and that can be extremely frustrating at times when you see like this off season when the entire city was well, let's go get you know this player, let's go draft this player, let's go sign this player, and you'd see them go all off the board. And you're just, well, what are you waiting for? And not to take anything away from the players we signed, I think they will be good additions, but none of them are the splashes we thought we were going to go after. You know, nobody was sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for Morrow Cop to show up. I think Poyle's just going to kind of let the game come to him. And I think this is the year you really do it too, especially with Seattle coming in next year. You don't want to make a splash and end up having to, you know, necessarily protect somebody that you weren't planning on protecting. Is there any GM who did great when for when Vegas came in and didn't get destroyed by the expansion draft? He did it great where he knew he was going to lose James Neal and I'm, didn't protect him and it let him go, but still had his main piece. <laughs> That's still a soft spot for some people around here. That's, you know, <laughs> You did mention Shea Weber, that trade. Shea Weber, I can say probably neck to Pekka Rene, probably the, the biggest superstar the franchise has ever seen. June 22nd, 2015, the announcement comes, the one-for-one one trade for P.K. Subban. I want to kind of get a take on the Nashville side thing. How did that trade kind of work? What was it kind of your reaction to it? I can tell you where I was. <laughs> I, I was in my car listening to our local radio station, our local Pred station, 102.5 The Game. There's a shout out for you, Willie, Darren, Donick, Chase. I was leaving my lunch break. I had gone to get a burger at my lunch break and I turned on my car and I was maybe about 
30 seconds behind the original announcement. You know, you hear Shea Weber, PK Subban, the trade has happened. And the color left my face. You know, I rained. I was like, are you kidding me? Trade shit. That's the captain. You don't trade your captain. And PK was a great, great fit. And he's a great, phenomenal player. But in that instant, like, who the hell are we trading this guy? Why the hell are we going after this guy? Shea Weber has led us to the playoffs. We won the first playoff series with him. You know, we got to the second round with him. All these big things. He's the guy. He's the guy that puts the team on his back. He's the emotionless, silent killer that just does, does, does for this team. And then, of course, after things kind of settle down and you think about it rationally for a second and you sit here and go, wait a minute. P.K. Subban's a flashy defender. He's a great defender. He's been a phenomenal player for the Canadians, and he's younger, and we get him for a little bit cheaper? Yeah, okay, I'm in. And and I thought P.K. was a great fit here, and I know I'm not necessarily in the majority of Nashville fans that think that, but I thought P.K. was a great fit here, and I hated to see him go. I thought he was a great fit. I thought he was a great fit not only for the team and his playing skill and his playing style, but I think he helped, you know, as I referenced before, I used to call this city the team the league forgot. I think he helped shine a spotlight on this city when we needed it the most. That playoff cup run, he kind of grabbed the spotlight and he pointed it at himself and he pointed it at the city. And I think that helped. I think that helped a lot. You know, when we had the All-Star game back here before he was here, when we had the All-Star game here, everybody kept shining the spotlight on Nashville and saying it was a great city. It was a great event. We had a great time. It was a great party. And I thought, great, this is a one and done thing because there's no reason to come back here. There's not that superstar pull to come back here. And then, you know, we get a guy like Subban who the spotlight just follows them whether you want it to or not. And, you know, now we're in a winter classic. We were going overseas for the a Swedish game and, and the, the series over there before that got canceled. And things got noticed here in Nashville because the spotlight was here. So not only did I think his playing style helped us, but I think the spotlight has kind of helped us become a, a more recognizable hockey set. Hearing that, I think that's true because PK, he had that pizzazz and I think he brings that attention even like i follow him on twitter and instagram he's doing things in jersey bring that spotlight that really helps and i think the kicker out of it at all the first year he's there you go to the stanley cup final where no one predicted and you're hoping many yeah years. and absolutely. i also look at it the other thing where what really helped the trade weber still has quite a few years left on that offer sheet that philly threw at him many years ago and if weber does retire there's going to be a cap recapture where pk Let's say he stays. He only has a year or so left on that deal. So it's not like you're tied to him forever. Yeah. And that offer sheet, I think we're still tied to that offer sheet. If I remember the way that trade works, I think if Shea goes down, I think he's still got, gosh, I want to say two or three years on that thing. And if he goes out, it's still on us. Yeah. It's (laughs) we're tied to him. We're still tied to tourists. You know, we let tourists go and we're tied to tourists. That's a 2 million a year on the hook. And that contract for Shea was so backloaded in the back years of that contract that it's, it can hurt, but I love Shea Weber. I always will love Shea Weber. I thank Shea for everything he contributed to this team, this city, and this community. But I think making that move was the right move. I really think that move was the right move. I think it lit a fire under the city and uh, the team. We got to the game six of the Stanley Cup final that year and haven't really looked back since. I think the other thing as well, it's kind of like the spotlight on just how good that Nashville D's are, where Roman Yossi finally gets the appreciation he deserves winning the North this year. Brian Ellis, a great defenseman. Matthias Ekholm, another good young man, where... I think a lot of it was always Shea Weber does so much for the team. And I think it's more like these players on their own is great. 
And I'm just putting it out there. That was never David Poyle who offered that contract to him. It was Paul Holmgren from Philly. So I don't understand why Nashville still stuck with it because either they had to let him walk or they keep him. Yeah, he signed with us. So Philly put it out there. Poyle was like, no, we'll go ahead and match it. But uh, but yeah, no, I agree. Shane Suter had that spotlight, that top D line for so long. And when Suter walked under less than acceptable circumstances to the fans in Nashville, I get what he did, what he did for his family. I get that. But Nashville felt burned on that one and still does. But when Suter left and when shit, it gave guys like Yossi, like Ellis, like Eki a chance to shine. And I love the fact those guys have grabbed that attention, that time, and made it theirs. You know, you're going to pay attention to Roman Yossi. You're going to pay attention to Ryan Ellis. And in the last couple of years, you're going to pay attention to Matias Ekholm. You can always see, we love it naturally. You can always see there's a switch that turns on with Maddie that he'll play and he'll play strong. But that one thing happens on the ice and you see that I'm pissed off now switch hit and he just goes into another mode and we love it. And it's, it's great. It's nice being the city known for defense, but give me some offense here too. And I th- They've had some good forwards. Martin Erat was a good forward. Lobus Malls and David Legwan. The first, I think, maybe legitimate kind of all-star forward they have was Philip Forsberg, where Poyle fleeces George McQueen, which I am a Capitals fan. I don't know why McQueen even agreed to that trade. But <laughs> it was a incredible move by Poyle bringing Forsberg because I think that just showed this team now has like a superstar forward they can pay attention to. Well, and don't forget, we had Paul Korea. Don't forget, we had I Paul Korea. With Paul Korea, though, a little bit younger, I can't recall. I know he played and he still put up good numbers. But I think for a longevity forward, Forsberg kind of fits that role. Oh, absolutely. No, Forsberg's absolutely the offensive superstar that we really need, and he fits so well in that front line. But, you know, Paul Korea did play here, and unfortunately, we lost him. <laughs> but he did play here. And we had uh, Peter Forsberg for like a cup of coffee, but he did play here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, force. I mean, that deal, you couldn't have, I don't think there's any way anybody could have predicted that that deal was going to be so one-sided at that time. And uh, for the life of me, I can't even remember who the second player was Michael that actually gave in that deal. That's it. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> And Erat was a much beloved player here in Nashville. Both of, both of them are footnotes in hockey history, too. These are, they're a trivia answer. Who did Nashville give up to get their top-line scorer, the player that they've been needing for so long? Martin Erat and Michael Lotta. That's what they are now. As much as they were great players here in Nashville, well, Erat was a great player here in Nashville. They're a stepping stone to Philip Forsberg and Poyle. Just, I don't know if he saw something that McPhee didn't. I don't know if they're, if Forsberg had some kind of heat for some reason to get him out. I, I don't know, but man, thank you, <laughs> McPhee, forever and ever. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like, at that point, I was like, what the? Wait, I was like, okay, maybe Martin Erat, he's a good second line winger. He might help the Caps score in the playoffs. No, Adam Oates puts him on the third line. What the heck? And I'm like, great, we gave up a superstar. But no, I think Forsberg really has brought something to that team that is great. And that top line of Arvison and Johansson, just a great trio. And you can really feel it when either one of those three is off or gone. And when one of them is out for injury, that line just doesn't produce the same way it does. But Forsberg, man, he anchors that line. Forsberg brings the skill and the talent. Johansson brings the hard nose kind of grit and determination. And Arvidsson, man, he's just a fire plug. You can put him in anywhere and he'll turn your yeah, I don't think enough credit goes out to that trade where fourth overall pick that year, Seth Jones for Ryan Johansson, where I know his time in Columbus. It was a little rocky. They didn't know keep him in. 
I know the Predators just lost Suter the year before, and you get Seth Jones in that trade, and that trade, I think, just really started the trajectory to putting this team as a really good, legitimate cup contender. And it was really weird here at the time because Johansson wasn't on anybody's radar, really, and Seth Jones, you know, top pick we've ever had since the initial inaugural Predators draft, top line we've ever had, and and a solid, solid defender, and he's doing wonderfully in in Columbus, and I'm happy for him, but a lot of us were like, wait a minute, we sacrificed like a season to get this guy, and and you're trading him for, for who? But man, you know, that hindsight is 50-50 kind of thing, 2020, whatever. That was a good trade for us. It was a good trade for Columbus. It fit for both of them. Before I let you go, Udi, I just want to touch two quick questions. Do, who, who do you think yeah, are man. the Nashville Predators' biggest rival in hockey? I look at maybe the Red Wings because they had so many big playoff series earlier with them. Could it be the Blackhawks? Is it the Stars? Who are their biggest rivals? Before realignment, I was said Detroit, hands down, and there's a lot of history there for that reason. When the team first came in here, we had a GM plant. It was Saturn at the time, if anybody remembers the Saturn car company. And there was a lot of Detroit transplants that came down to help open that plant. They stayed in Nashville, and of course, they brought Red Wings with them. And yeah, they liked the Preds, but they were bigger Red Wings fans. And we uh, used to call them the <laughs> Pred Wing fans because they'd flip allegiances. So until realignment, absolutely 100% it was Detroit. We were always little brother, and they were always big brother. With the realignment, Chicago. Hands down, Chicago. And I think that's uh, closeness of the team plus they became big brother. That was the the tale we were chasing for so long. Plus, everybody hates Chicago. It's like what you do. <laughs> no, that, that is true. And I think with I, I go to Detroit a little bit because they played quite a few good, long playoff series against the two teams in 2012. They finally were able to put them away in five. Oh, no, absolutely. Had realignment not happened, it 100% would have been Detroit as the big rival. Now, it's still a rival, but I feel like it's more of a friendly rivalry. It's kind of one of those, yeah, you, you hate each other, but you're still going to send Christmas <laughs> cards and you're still going to you know, rub shoulders after the game. With Blackhawks, you, you don't do it. There's a Blackhawk bar in Nashville after the game. Oh, Nobody wow. goes there. and You just don't coexist. That is nuts. <laughs> my last question for you, D, I would like to ask anyone that comes on the show, what is your favorite moment for the team you cheer for, for the Preds? Would it be the first playoff series? Would it be the first playoff series win? Would it be something from the 2017 run? Or Oh, man. There's so many great moments with this team. So many firsts. You know, when you're still a young team, there's so many firsts. I, the first playoff win against Detroit is always big. For me personally, when I stepped into the building for game three of the Stanley Cup final and you look down on the ice and you see Stanley Cup final there on the ice and like the chills that came over me and and I'm not going to lie, I cried when I walked in the door and I saw that. I'm like, this is real. It's really happening. I can touch my seat. I can touch the thing. I can... um, But for me, it's always gone back to the same thing. Anytime anyone asks me this question, my favorite moment of this franchise is triple overtime at 1.30 in the morning, uh, being there as Mike Fisher buries that puck in the back of the net in that playoff series uh, against Anaheim. And just just, just 1.30 in the morning, I didn't get home until like 2 o'clock, 2.15 that morning, and I had to turn around and go to work the next day. I didn't sleep. I just pushed through it. It was so, I mean, it was exciting. I've never been to a game anywhere, football, soccer, basketball, baseball, hockey, where the concession stands reopened so people can get a cup of coffee. It was insane. And the place, it was still, 
gosh, it was still two thirds full at one thirty in the morning. It was crazy. And that goal and the electricity and the, the feeling of holy crap, he scored and holy crap, we won and holy crap, I can go home kind of all <laughs> at the same time. And uh, man, that was that was yeah, a good moment. That's no, a good moment. I think that's that, that where it kind of maybe get hidden, but that's such a huge moment because that playoff there, if I remember correctly, they beat Anaheim in seven, and then Fisher yes. scored that triple overtime against San Jose. I think Mike Fisher, when he got traded, he just became a fan favorite for that team, and it just beloved. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it doesn't hurt that he you know married one of Nashville's daughters, mm-hmm. Carrie Underwood. So, and the fact that both of them just continue to give so much to this community, even after the fact of playing and they stayed here and they're raising their family here and they really do give back. Fisher is going to be one of those, maybe not NHL Hall of Fame, but certainly Nashville Hall of Fame players. Yeah, no, I, I could see him possibly, if Nashville does retire a number, I could see his number for sure going up in the rafters. I think it'll be there. Yeah, I think it'll be there. I think the first one they retire, then I don't think they're going to retire a number until mm-hmm. Pekka. And then they'll start, you'll, you'll start seeing almost a tidal wave yeah. <laughs> of, of player numbers come so, through. Yuri, I appreciate you coming on the episode today. I had a great time talking with the Predators, learning so much about the fan base. Anytime. The organization. It sounds exciting. I'm hoping one day to come down to that arena and watch them thank you so much for this hopefully we'll see how the preds do next year it's going to be interesting what happens anytime at all man anytime at all it's, it's been my pleasure as well and if you ever need national perspective give me a call if you find your way down here let's go grab a drink together and uh just remember nashville that is the bottom line because the ultimate predator <laughs> awesome. so. thank you so much